Hey everybody, and thanks again for joining me today for another episode of the NHS 100K podcast with me, Matt Taylor. And today I've got Adam, who's um, vaccine injured, so it's going to be a um, somber one because from what I've spoke to him about things so far, and I purposefully not heard his whole story, so I wanted it to be on the show that I heard it for the first time because I just think it's. Um, but he seems like a lovely guy, and what I've heard so far has been. Um, it's been a bit horrendous. So, um, so anyway, Adam, thanks for coming on the show, mate. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, yeah, as John W said last time, I'm living the dream. That's what we're all doing at the minute. Do you know what, mate? Uh, I think that should, that should be a little little slogan for you, like living the dream. Um, yeah, yeah, in, in, in yeah. quotes <laughs> as well. <laughs> right. Okay. So go back as far as you want to go back, please, and just tell us everybody what's uh, what's kind of happened to you, mate. Yeah. So um, you know, I was quite fortunate up until this happened to me. Um, 17, 18 year career in professional sport, um, worked in professional ballet, believe it or not, to begin with, um, a bit in professional football, um, and then mainly in rugby league, uh, even worked with the national team in rugby league, um, then worked for the military overseas and operational base overseas, was quite privileged on that. And then formally, just before, um, and just, just while the COVID pandemic was kicking off, I worked on the PGA Golf Tour in America with a couple of um, professionals over there. So I was having a, a really great time with my life and a uh, great family life and uh, everything. And then, um, yeah, I got the uh, COVID vaccinations and life has um, been completely shattered and my life's been completely changed ever since. Uh, it's been devastating is an understatement to me and, and my family. I bet, mate. So you, before all of this, obviously... Well, it's not obvious at all. Nothing's obvious. So if I say obviously, forgive me. Um, <laughs> you know, when you listen back to this, sorry, but when you listen back, this is why I don't like listening back to myself because especially when I do the transcript, all I can see is when I've said stuff and I'm like, oh, stop saying that, stop saying that. But when you try and consciously, anyway, sorry. Um, we, all do it, we all do it. Oh, mate, honestly, it's, it's when you're doing it on your own and you're just speaking to people, you don't care because you're just like chatting away. But when you hear it back, you're like, especially as I've done a few episodes now, I keep thinking, oh, stop saying it. So apologies, everybody. Um, I'm not a pro. Uh, right. So anyway, back back on track. So you would have had to take in your, your, your jabs to carry on doing the, the PG, the golf stuff, clearly. Um, yes. So, so what happened there was um, we got six months grace by the um, United States government. So COVID, was, I was in America when COVID hit. They shut down one of the tournaments. So it was the players' tournament. I remember it vividly. I think we played round one. And then Jay Minahan came on uh, the news saying we were suspending the PGA Tour, too dangerous to continue. And then followed by President Trump on CNN saying, you know, we're closing the borders. So I jumped back on a plane home. Um, and then a few, a few months later, it was about, so that was March time. So I think it got to May. And then the PGA Tour resumed without without fans there. So I got special dispensation from the US government to return to America without any vaccines because there, there, was, there wasn't any vaccines then. Right. Um, so I returned to America and could ret uh, we got six months grace basically until the vaccines came out. Uh, and then after that, um, obviously, as a non-US national to enter the USA, you had to have you have to be fully vaccinated. Did you have any problem? <clears throat> Did you have any problem with that at the time? Um, to be honest with you, no. I because I, I was so busy in my career, Matt. Um, it seems really, you know, with hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. 
but when I was looking after my professionals in my career all my time, I always researched and went to the nth degree because, you know, I took their bodies more serious than my own. I was putting my name to them and they meant everything to me. Um, but at the time, you know, I just trusted all the stuff on the TV and my wife, um, her mother was elderly and, um, you know, she was at the end of her life. And the last thing I wanted was, I, to be honest, I fell for the thing like, I took the vaccine because I didn't want to pass it on. My, I didn't want to pass it on to someone else if they got COVID, and that would really on my conscience. So that yeah. was probably my main motivating factor, really, to get the vaccine more than going back to the USA. Yeah, I think it was most people's motivation, wasn't it? Oh, we've got this horrible thing, and we've got this thing that will protect those people from it. So you know, yeah. uh, it's 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 the no brainer for people to have done that sort of thing. Was it Pfizer or AstraZeneca that you had? Uh, unfortunately, I had two AstraZenecas because um, I was at the top of the list being like a healthcare professional. So I sort of got them first with the vulnerable. Um, and at the time where I got it, where I live, uh, so I'm from the northwest, St. Helens in the UK. Um, you know, I went to the vaccination centre and it was literally, this is what you've got. There's no choice. You know, there you mm. go, stick it in your hand. So did you get any effects or any problems from the first one or was it the second one? Uh yeah, so I got I got effects. Um, what I would say is probably, you know, what accepted normal effects from the first one. But then looking back, I got a lot of effects as well that clearly wasn't right. But um, basically what happened was so, but the second one was where my world just completely fell apart. But after the first one, what happened was I was in bed for about four days, shivering and sweating like a really bad fever, like I had the flu. So I thought, you know, that's that's fine part of the course it's a bad virus you know it's a normal vaccine reaction but then about the week after my wife started noticing that um i started to have these little um i don't know what you call them myoclonic jerks little fits in my in, while i was falling asleep and fits in my sleep uh, and i was flailing all my arms and legs about and like punching her essentially in the bed and she was like what are you doing what's wrong with you and i just said i just said i can't help it i said i've got massive pains all down my left arm and my left leg I said, it just feels like just horrendous nerve pain I've never had before. Um, so, yeah, I got that. And then at the same time, I started to develop, um, which I now know are palpitations in my heart, but I didn't I didn't know what they were. Um, so I, I'd be falling asleep, I'd have these fits, and then I'd wake up and, like, my heart would be doing all this crazy stuff. And I literally didn't know what it was. So, um, you know, I left it a few weeks because I've, I've never been to my doctors in years and years, so... I left it a few weeks and it carried on and I thought, this is a bit weird. I didn't feel fully right. I just felt like I had a bit of a virus. Um, and at the time in the UK, probably as everyone can remember, you couldn't get a face-to-face -face GP appointment for love and the money. And, you know, it was everything over the telephone. So I telephoned them up. Uh, GP just says, oh, it's a panic attack. Um, you're having panic attacks. So I was like, right, okay. It just seemed weird because I wasn't even at work at this stage. So why would I be panicking? But anyway... I, you know, I, I'd never had a panic attack, so I didn't know what one was. So I just thought, well, you know, my doctor's right. So um, cut a long story short, I then got to March, which is two months after the first jab. And it, it was getting ridiculous. Um, and by this time, um, I, you know, I was getting, I'd lie down in bed flat. And all I could describe is it was like my brain was in a tumble dry and my head was spinning. And it was like I had vertigo, but lying down. So I got in touch with the GP again via the phone call. He said, it's anxiety and depression. So I was like, right. Um, 
I said, okay. And then he, he said to me, I think you should try some antidepressants. Um, so I was like, right, okay. Um, wasn't really mad keen, but I just didn't feel well. So, I, you know, I took the antidepressants for, I don't know, it was about three weeks, but after the first week, they were making me even worse. Um, so the GP went, oh, it's just the wrong antidepressant for you. And then like changed it. Uh, changed it to another one and it was horrendous I couldn't sleep I developed like this horrendous insomnia um, to the point where my, I had to take about three weeks off work um, so I hadn't gone back to the USA at this point oh sorry this was 2021 so yeah I had to take three weeks off work um, and they they were fine about it and um, yeah I took three weeks off work and then uh, it just carried on really um, and I didn't think anything of it and then I was still exercising training and doing everything else but I just I felt like just about 60% of my normal self and the, had all these weird symptoms and then obviously I went and then got the the second vaccination in the May 21 and then um, yeah holy uh, holy crap yeah the, the ass dropped out of my world from there really so you were still having effects from the first one when you went and had the second one essentially then hundred percent because I, yeah. I like an idiot that I was, I didn't, you know, because I'd never been not, not knowingly, obviously, yeah. Yeah, not knowingly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, because every other vaccination you've had in your life, right? You know, you have a vaccination a few days you might feel ill and then you've forgotten about it as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. So so what happened after the second one? <laughs> yeah. Um so again the the story's so long winded, so I'll try not to rush and miss any of the yeah, the don't worry, I've got plenty of time here. Yeah, I just think the details are important for any viewers because I can, um, you know, in case anyone else is going through what I went through, and that's one of my big reasons, Matt, for speaking out. Um, yeah. Because there's a massive ignorance between the medical profession on this in the general hospitals up and down the country. Um, and, I, and I don't blame the doctors because it's what they're seeing on the TV. They're not seeing anything on the TV up until probably more recently, it's coming out now. Um, so May 21, had the vaccination, second one. Um, within about seven days, I developed um, quite significant chest pain. Um, again, in my mentality as a, as a former sports person, you know, weight training, trained every day of my life, pretty much since I was sort of, you know, sports since I was 12 or 13. Um, you know, I, I was still considering convincing myself then that, you know, there was nothing wrong. So I got this chest pain and I said, oh, it's just costochondritis. You know, you've over pushed too much in the gym. Well, I knew it wasn't. So I left it another week. Um, and then <laughs> I remember it was a Sunday night. And, um, I was getting ready to doing some prep for work on the Monday. Um, and I literally started to go horrendously dizzy. Um like I was passing out, so I had to sit down, otherwise I was going to pass out. Chest pain was horrendous, started sweating. Um, all I could feel like is I felt like I couldn't breathe, vice around my chest. I thought, I'm having a heart attack here. Um, so um, I couldn't even like move where I'd, I'd sat down. I couldn't move. I would have collapsed and passed out. Um, so I got my brother to actually phone an ambulance, um, and they, cut, they came out to me, checked me ECG, um, found a couple of like weird anomalies on there, nothing too significant. They just said, oh, we think it's because you've always been a fit guy. It looks like you've got athlete's heart changes on your ECG. Um, and then they took me to hospital. Um, took me in hospital. Um, took me serious, you know. 
did the usual, you'll know yourself more than me what the standard sort of NHS protocol is, you know, bung me on an ECG, full blood count, um, and um, obviously troponin, and um, that, that was as far as the checks went. So I waited for the double troponin, so they took one when I got there, the ECG, you know, left me on the ECG, um, and then basically said, you know, stay with us, we'll do a repeat troponin in whatever it is, six hours time, and then we'll see where we go from there, and then did that, and then the guy just came to me, doctor came around to me and said, um, yeah, um, there can only be three causes of your pain, obviously, it could be cardiac, respiratory, or, you know, it could be joints, or costochondritis kind of thing. He said, um, he said, I don't think it's any of them. He says, I think you've had a panic attack. So I was like, oh, okay, right. I said, um, it's funny, that's what my doctor's been telling me. I said, but I said, I said, I've never had chest pain like this before. You know, I was telling him, I said, I said, don't feel like no panic attack to me. I said, I've had anxiety before. I said, it's, it's nothing like that. And he said, well, we can't find anything, buddy. You know, I'll, I'll write a letter to your doctor. See you later. Um, so carried on for another couple of weeks um you know i just thought oh it's all this anxiety and then um what happened was i passed out in work um so other people witnessed it for the first time i just i was working felt myself go within about two or three seconds boom i hit the deck um don't remember anything other than you know waking up and and that and, and i started to get more incidences of this um just extreme dizziness. It was like someone was turning the light switch off on my brain. It was like, oh, I'm going to pass out here. And the pain was starting to get um, worse and worse. Um, so then I phoned my GP up again because obviously he had this discharge from the hospital and I said, you know, what's going on? And he's like, oh, it's just panic attacks and anxiety. And I was just like fuming by this stage. Yeah, I bet. Um, so what I did was then is I because he wasn't prepared to do anything, my um, GP, I phoned an old colleague up, he's a, consp a consultant cardiologist, so because I worked in sport, you know, we had, I had access, so I phoned up and I said, Rich, I said, um, this is what's been going on, buddy, I said, um, it's really weird, I said, my doctor's told me it's anxiety, I said, do you mind having a look at me and, and just giving me your opinion, so he said, yeah, buddy, he said, um, he said drive up to the hospital, um, you know, very privileged for me to do this, um, you know, but he saw me as a, as a, you know, as an old colleague. Um, and then he said to me, right, we'll stick a 24 hour ECG on you. And, um, you know, just put your mind at rest basically. And then he just did the standard thing that everyone who has an ECG says, you know, if you get any symptoms, write them down, bring me the ECG back. So that's what we did. 24 hour ECG. And I got a couple more of these incidences, took it back to him. And then he downloaded it and he got back to me on the Wednesday, a couple of days later, and he just said, oh, buddy, he says, your heart's going into VT. Um, <laughs> he said, that's why, you, that's why you're going dizzy. He said, um, "He said I think you're having a reflexive blood pressure response to the VT. Um, so he said, don't, he said, don't worry too much, as in, he said, they're only short episodes. So it was doing like six and ten seconds, then going back six and ten seconds, but that was when I was doing that, I didn't know it was going to VT, but that was why I was reporting the dizziness. Mm. So he just said to me then, he said, buddy, you need a cardiac MRI. I'm going to refer you for one, but it's going to take a few weeks on the NHS. Um, he said, in the meantime, if anything happens, you need to go to hospital. And he gave me a copy, the paper print out of the VT episode to take with me. Cool. Um, 
so he, he did that for me and then lo and behold I got about another week and I had um, I had a collapse this time I passed out again um, so this time got the ambulance um, and then straight to hospital as soon as they saw it to be fair to him on the ECG um, they admitted me straight away onto the ACU so I didn't go you know I wasn't on A&E sat there like a numpty for ages hmm. um, and then they basically uh, just at a local general hospital um, they saw this VT and then said, oh, we think you've got Brugada syndrome. Um, we can't do a cardiac MRI here. Um, but then they, unbeknown to me, they did some bloods that I didn't know the results of until recently. They did like D-dimer and things, and it turned out I yep. was very high on D-dimer. Yep. Um, so, so they did at that time, they were more concerned I had blood clots causing it. So they did do like um, a CT, PA in my lungs, et cetera, and did a... Um, a CT in my heart as well, but couldn't find anything. Um, and then they referred me to the uh, local um, specialist hospital, Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital, which I had to wait a number of weeks for. Um, so that's when I decided, because I was feeling so bad, I decided, look, I need to get this sorted for my job. Um, I, I paid private for the scan and the consultation. Uh, and to cut a long story short there, the consultant was just like, it was like this, and he's a top uh, top cardiologist. He said, I, I, I don't think it's a very serious VT. He said, I think you've got a, a, a right ventricular outflow track pattern. He said, mm-hmm. but it's still very unusual to be idiopathic. He said, you'd normally have them from being a child. Um, you wouldn't just develop them at your age. Yeah. So, he's, so he suggested then at the time that, um, like none of us thought it was the vaccine. It hadn't even crossed his mind. So he said, I'll send you back to your GP. It could be your adrenal glands. It could be like thyroid. He said, you just need a full medical workup. And then that that was how it went, really. Yeah, so. Okay, so let's just, so so VT for everyone is ventricular tachycardia. So that's basically when the bottom two chambers of your heart start kind of quivering and the whole heart trips out, basically, and freaks out, which means there's not enough blood in the chambers. So, oh, crikey, sorry. So you're not getting adequate blood going around the body that's got oxygen in it. So if that happens for too long, you'll 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 have a heart attack, uh, and then it can shock you. And then Brigada syndrome is uh, something to do with the electrical current. Your, your, your heart has a pathway that electrical current starts out at the top, so like an internal pacemaker. And Brigada syndrome is where it kind of goes a bit crazy. So the heart, right? Without getting too technical, all the cells yeah, in the heart yeah. will contract. Yeah. <laughs> that's why there needs to be a, a specific current. To, to allow the heart to contract the way it does. If it's not going follows in that way, different parts of the heart, your heart just fucking fucks up. <laughs> basically. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Sorry. But yeah, your heart trips out because the electrical <laughs> current's not right, basically. So yeah. So I just wanted to give people... Okay, so basically you develop that, which is something that's normally more apparent when you're younger and you don't just develop it out of the blue. Did you, did you know they told John Watt as well that it was anxiety and, and panic attacks as well? I remember him telling no, me... No, sorry. No, so he, he didn't say that one little bit. He said this. I asked him that question. That was the first thing I asked him. I asked I asked my friend Rich as well when he gave me the cardiologist who, who did me the favour. Hmm. Um, I asked him. I said, "Could anxiety cause VT?" And he said, no, "Absolutely no chance. No. It's not." He said, "Not a." He said, "It's not possible, buddy." No, no, you can't have any control of that. Right. Okay. So, so, so after that, what happened? Yeah. So. Um, after that, then he discharged me back to my GP. He did say to me, if the episodes keep getting longer, like 
they have some sort of algorithm if you're going into VT so many beats of the day or something. He said to me, it'll either be an ablation or he doesn't think with my heart that I need it yet, but you'd have you could potentially a defib client in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, yeah. Did, he, he didn't suggest it. He was happy to discharge me back to my GP. Went back to my GP, sent me to an endocrinologist. Um, endocrinologist, local hospital, was not asked one little bit. Um, I had to basically beg him to do these tests that the cardiologist uh, had wanted, a short synaxin test, I think it was called, short synaxin test. Right. Test your cortisol and, 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 yeah. and such. Um, so they did that test, came back uh, fairly normal, um, and then basically discharged me and just said, yeah, we don't know, you know, we're not cardiologists. I suggest you go back to your GP. Absolutely no interest, no concern um, about my heart there from them guys. So I got to uh, September, October. Um, things were just getting even worse, Matt. Um, the dizziness had got to the point where I couldn't lie flat in bed. I couldn't sleep. I was going like five days without sleep at that point. So I was getting about an hour. Um, I was starting to um, almost hallucinate because I couldn't sleep with all the, the stuff going on in my chest and the dizziness and this insomnia. Um yeah, it was it was fairly horrendous. So I went back to my GP who said, right, we'll give you some sleeping tablets and you need to go back on these antidepressants because you've had your heart checked. Um, you've had your heart checked and you've had your endocrine check. You know, there's no explanation for this other than it's, you know, it's, it's stress. So I was like, I just didn't know what to do. It was crazy. So again, I was that desperate to be well. I just thought, well, there's, you know, I've got these professionals telling me there's nothing wrong with me. And like, I thought, I'll give this one last crack on these drugs. So mm. I did it again. And holy moly, it made me even worse. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I just went terrible. I went terrible. Um, <laughs> I was like um, the dizziness and everything. It just made it like horrendous. And I literally could not sleep without these sleeping tablets um, so I had to stay on the sleeping tablets up until Christmas just to get any kind of sleep. You know, I was getting about four hours on sleeping tablets and I'd wake up and the dizziness was too bad and the tablets wouldn't suppress it. It was just an absolute nightmare. Um, so went back to my doctors again and I'd, by this point I'd developed a load, whole load of other symptoms that I've sort of missed out that happened around about the August time. I started right. to develop blurred vision, uh, tinnitus in my ears, uh, face rashes that I'm still getting a lot of. Uh, and I started to develop all um, fasciculations, which I don't know if people don't understand what they are. It's just like muscle twitching in your muscle fibers. I started to develop them all over my body into my triceps, my chest, my calves. Um, I'm getting all kinds of crazy muscle spasms as well. Um, and it was really weird. And I, I started to develop quite a lot of pain in both calves. So I went to the GP, suggested a neurologist at this point, um, and I went off the back of that. I The waiting list was about four or five months, I think. So I then paid privately again to see a neurologist. So the neurologist um, said, I think you might have MS, um, or we certainly need to rule that out anyway. So that was his first part of call, and he said, right, we'll order you an MRI of your brain and your spinal cord. Um so that's what he did um, and then went back to the neurologist in March of this year, so March 22, by the time the results came through. 
um, because I couldn't afford to pay for the private MRI scan, I'd pay for a private appointment. Hmm. Um, so I went back to the neurologist. He said, your MRI scan has got some weird things on it. We don't know what they are, but we think it's just that you've moved in the scanner, which they call them artifacts. Yeah. But he said, you've got three big, long, linear lines of high intensity on your scan. And he said, but it's not MS. So he said, I'm not too sure what's going on. So to be fair to the neurologist, he then said, I want to do some nerve conduction studies on you, um, you know, to rule out anything nasty like MND and things like that. What's MFB? Sorry, MND. Motor neuron, motor neuron disease. disease, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and all, right. all the nasty stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so at this time, I, I sort of said to him, I said to him at this time, like, I said, do you think this could be COVID vaccination done this? I said, because... I said, you know, I'm fit as a fiddle. I said, I've never been ill. I said, and that's the only thing that's changed in my life, you know. So did you and get to, to that point? To... Sorry, mate. Sorry to interrupt. Did you get to that conclusion yourself or, do you, or did anyone else suggested it up, up until that point? No, I, I got to that. It was starting to come into my mind as a possible because I, I, I'd started to sit there, Matt, because of, I had these antidepressants on, what was it, two occasions, I think it was. I started to question my own sanity a bit. I know it sounds crazy, but um, mm. for someone who's like a medical, you know, I was head of medical and, you know, I've got a, you know, you know, an all right working basic knowledge of, of general basic medical stuff. So I thought I started to question my own sanity a bit. And I was thinking, I know this isn't all depression. Anxiety. You know, these physical symptoms, I thought you can't imagine them up in the VT. Mm. So at this point, that, I was racking my brain thinking, what could it be? And then I was thinking, well, the only thing that could be is the vaccine. So that was when, when I went to the neurologist, I suggested it to him. And he, he to be fair to him, he didn't, he didn't say no. He, he just said to me, yeah, it could well be. Um, but then he made a comment that he didn't mean anything bad by it, but it, it caught me so deep. He said to me, Matt, he went, well, he said, we don't know what caused Gulf War syndrome, he said, so... You know, he just sort of laughed at me and said, I'm sorry, you know, it's highly unlikely we're going to find this if it's vaccination. Um, and, and that was his stance on it. Um, so unbeknown to me, there was a little bit of a twist to this tale. Um, he ordered a load of blood tests, which I didn't know, to see if there was any autoimmune things going on. And he also ordered some um, a thrombophilia screen, um, which turned out to be positive. But nobody ever reported the results back. I only found out after it clotted. So he did that in March of 2022. And for whatever reason, in the bureaucracy of the NHS between himself and my GP, nobody ever reported that um, I was at high risk of blood clots. Um, so there was two tests on my thrombophilia screen um, for two proteins called protein C and S. Yeah. And basically the, the numbers were on the floor. Um, so at that point, then potentially, you know, it should have flagged up, but you know what what subsequently later happened but it didn't it didn't arrive on anybody's desk to to flag it up in time that's interesting because normally you you know if you get anything done like that outside your gp's kind of remit well not remit you know if he's referred you to a cardiologist it will they'll send a letter to your doctor um so your doctor should have picked it up and blood results not always but they're on your file still so mm. it's it's it it doesn't all and I'm not, I'm not sticking up for him here but it doesn't always flash up on the system unless you're looking at that particular patient's no. record 
Um, so it could have easily got lost in the system, which doesn't doesn't help. Um, right. No, I understand them pragmatically enough. The system's that busy, isn't it? So I get that. It's no excuse. It's no excuse. I mean, I personally, I think they should have. I've, I've been sent out to patients before that have had really bad potassium levels, and you know, you've had to physically say to them, "You need to come to hospital," and they're like, "I'm fine, I'm fine." So yeah, but for that, you know, that bad yeah. something could happen any minute. But they don't see the you know, anyway. So yeah, you're at risk. You're at risk. For um, for quite a few clots, then basically to paraphrase, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah, um, and then you just said then it was only when he did clot, so I take it then something happened. Yeah, so I got I, between seeing this guy in March, uh, the neurologist, but the second time I saw him, he was like, you know, good luck with it, but you know, I can't help you if it is vaccine. You know, it's probably we're never going to find it. Was his attitude. Um, and he's a leading professor, nationally known. So, you know, it's like if he's saying it. Yeah. Um, so I was getting worse and worse. By this time, I started to get really jaundiced. My eyeballs were yellow. Uh, I got a taxi to my GP in April. I said to my GP, I said, Doc, I said, I feel like I'm dying. He looked at me and he said, he knew me, you know, because I've been at that GP, even though I'd hardly ever seen him. He went, yeah, he says, um, I can see you're really ill. So he did the usual obs and they came back fine. And I was like, Doc, what should I do? Like, and um, he was like, we'll go to A&E. And I was like, Doc, I said, you know, I'm going A&E. You've told me it's in my head. I said, I've been to A&E, you know, I've been there, got told it was anxiety the first time, then the VT, then the endocrinologist. I said, if you're doing my obs, what's the likelihood that they're going to do anything? And he just mm -hmm. went, well, all I can do is advise you to go to A&E. And, and to be, to be fair, Matt, I didn't go because, um, I'm male and I just thought like, I don't want to be sit there and, and you know, if they're not going to do anything. So I, I thought, well, I'll push through. So I pushed through and got into May and then I ended up um, collapsing in May. Um, yeah. I ended up collapsing. My nephew found me on the floor one night. Um, I don't really remember much of that night. I remember a little bit before I collapsed, I got some warning signs. Um, I got severely dizzy like the first time last year. Uh, chest pain, sweating, um, heart rate just through the roof. My heart rate um, was, I've got a Garmin watch, so it was like going off saying abnormally high heart rate and all this. It was like 180. Um, and then I, I just don't remember anything else. Um, I remember the paramedics waking me up, putting an ECG on me at home. Um, and then I just remember being in a corridor in the hospital, just in and out of being woken up by being assessed by doctors and and, and nurses yeah so that's all i remember for the first two days there uh, i now know from from getting my notes they thought i had a stroke um apparently i didn't have any um control over my left side uh, my left arm and my left leg um so they kept me on a and e in a corridor according to the notes and then a side room when they managed to get a little place for me on a ward, on a, like an emergency ward um, and then eventually um, transferred me to a cardiac ward because of my cardiac history. That's what they thought was going on uh, when they realised it wasn't a stroke. Um, and then that's when the fun really began. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, mate. Um, I'm not... I'm not <laughs> no, mate, you will This story, mate, if someone told me, Matt, you would not believe it. So I'll, I'll tell you what happened next. And, and just if you need to ask anything, just interrupt. So... I, I end up on a cardiac ward after two days. Um, 
Um, you saw one of the, um, you know, the uh, registrars or whatever, he come round and does his rounds and they were like, yeah, we'll put you on an ECG monitor, uh, we'll send you for an echo. Um, so over the next few days, you know, I got them done um, and um, then the consultant came round to see me after being in hospital for about five days to five days to a week. I was in hospital before the consultant came round. Consultant cardiologist, because obviously on a cardiology ward, turned around to me and said, oh, I remember you from last year when you were on ACU. So I was like, oh, right, great. This is going to help me this. He said, um, there's nothing wrong with your ECG and there's nothing wrong with your echo. Um, so I'm going to discharge you. He said, um, I think you've got a problem with anxiety. Yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> um, so I said to him, by this point, I was like, I said, no, I said, you're talking absolute bullshit. Um, I said, there is no effing way under this sun. This is anxiety. I said, I know my own body. I said, you need to do something and you need to help me. I said, I've been reading up about vaccine um uh, vaccine damage and, and and I've actually I told him and he made me feel about this big I told him I joined a group called UK COVID vaccine family and that there was mm -hmm. quite a few people with similar things to me he laughed in my face Matt and said well you know I don't care this isn't vaccine injury I don't believe you so I said to him right I said I want you to um, run an MRI on my heart and he said well I can't do that at this hospital and there's no point because they're only indicated at least um, he said the time interval has to be a, a minimum of a year in between so we won't do it by policy he said uh, and he said because there's no indication on your ECG and nothing's changed um, no we're not doing it so I said to him right I said I believe this is vaccine injury um, I told him about a, a lady in the UK COVID vaccine group who's a researcher called Harriet Smasher. Um, I hope she doesn't mind me dropping a name, but she's essentially saved my life, so I will drop her name. Uh, she's working up at um, a hospital in Aberdeen up in Scotland, and she'd had a VQ scan because um, we're doing some research on her because she's vaccine injured. Um, and they found in her, her scan a load of anomalies. Um, which they thought were microclots and lots of small pulmonary emboli. So she'd recently put this on the UK COVID vaccine group. So this is fresh in the back of my mind. So this guy mm -hmm. said to me, you're discharging me with anxiety. And I was like, no chance. I said, I ain't going anywhere. I said, there's something seriously going on. So he, um, I said to him, I want a scan in my lungs. I said, I want this VQ scan in my lungs. And, um, you know, so he said, OK, he said, I'll do it, but there's going to be nothing on it. Um, so anyway, he ordered the scan next day, he got the scan done, came back um, and then he sent his junior to me and she came around and she said, yeah, um, she said, I'm awfully sorry. She said, you've got three uh, large peas on your lungs. Uh, she said, your third, you've got three large perfusion um, wedge shapes in your lungs where your lungs have essentially died. Uh, and you've got hundreds of pulmonary emboli in your lungs, hundreds of little ones in your lungs. Um, she said, you know, I'm really sorry and, you know, it's lucky you said something. Um, and then I never saw so he didn't the consultant. Send, he didn't send his, again. Did you see him? I was going to say, did you see him again, that bloke, or did he send his, his, his um, junior doctor around all the time after that? He's, he sent his junior doctor around, never got to see him again, and they couldn't get me rid, rid of me off the cardiology ward fast enough to try and get me to respiratory ward. Hmm. Brilliant. Um, so this is where the story gets more confusing. Now, I don't know whether you want to go into it. Stop me if it's too much. So essentially, respiratory come and see me. 
say, yeah, your lungs look in an absolute shit state. Um, you know, blood finished straight away. Um, weren't happy with me from a cardiac point of view. So they didn't want me on my their ward because they felt that from a cardiac I was a risk. Mm. So I'm like, holy shit, you know, I say, I just want to get, you know, I, I was in agony. I was like on all sorts of pain relief. I couldn't, I couldn't lie flat in bed. Um, so yeah, so then they decided they wanted to do more CT scans of me. Um, so I did CT scans of my lungs then. And then the, the, the CT scan of my lung came back. They could see all these tiny emboli, but they couldn't, they weren't convinced there was big PEs on my lungs. So then they decided to take me on the respiratory war, but they said, uh, we're going to stop your blood thinners, but we think it's pericarditis of your heart that's giving you your pain and not blood clots. Right. So I saw my ass at this point, Matt. Yeah. Um, so I said to them, I've worked in professional sport. I'm used to working with some of the top radiologists in the country that deal with, you know, scanning Premier League footballers. So I, I can phone up them if it's an, a musculoskeletal problem and I can have an educated conversation with them about, you know, clinical presentation, differential diagnosis, and we come up with a, a, a you know, a, a, an educated, uh, you know, treatment plan, if you like. Yeah. So I says to a respiratory guy, um, I'm a little bit concerned here that you're stopping my blood thinners. He said, why is that? I said, well, what's the differential diagnosis of the VQ scan being a false positive? So he starts getting really shitty with me. And he said, look, um, it's wrong. The VQ scan's wrong. CT scan is the gold standard. So I said to him, I said, look, I said, yes, that is accepted within the NHS. I said, but if we start looking at sensitivity and specificity of the scans, I said, I said, there ain't a huge lot of difference. So I said, this is my body. I said, and with respect, could you ask the radiologist what could look like, like lungs are dying and what could look like three large blood clots? I said, because it ain't just nothing. Mm. So the guy started to get really, really shitty with me. He wouldn't go there and just said like, listen, you know, I'm I'm the consultant. You've not got you've not got blood clots. Uh, you've got pericarditis, and then it turned into a nightmare. Um, literally, uh, I was in agony, and I wasn't getting better, and I was getting worse for a week again. So I was starting to really shit myself. Um, it got to the point where they were putting me on IV morphine constantly through the day and through the night because of the pain. Um, it got to the point one night. There was a number of nights, but um, a number of nights where they put me on ECG in the middle of the night, um, either calling the doctors because my heart was going all over the place. Um, and one night, you know, obviously uh, it got that bad. That they brought the crash trolley into my side room, put my bed flat. Um, I could see the panic on the faces and they were calling the doctors and I was in a pretty bad way, Matt. I was in a bad way. I was pretty scared, buddy. I, uh, yeah, I was scared. Um, so anyway, I managed to obviously, um, by the grace of God, get through. Um, and then they just kept saying to me, it's pericarditis. Uh, I wasn't getting any better. In there for another week. Um they had me on Colchigene, um, ibuprofen, all anti-inflammatories for my heart, getting no better. And they said to me, look, there's nothing really wrong with you. You've just got pericarditis. You need to go home now. Um, and started to get quite 
that nurses were getting very unsympathetic, being abusive. Even one accused me of being a drug addict because I was needing morphine. Um, so I said to her, I said, check my chart. I said, I've never had a prescription for pain relief in my life up to now. I said, so, you know, calling me a drug addict is um, pretty hurtful. Um, so they basically got the pain team, said, you need the pain team. It's all in your head kind of thing. It's pericarditis, but you shouldn't be in this much pain. Um, got the pain team who then tried to prescribe all kinds of drugs. Um, oxy, oxy, I don't know what it was called. Yeah, oxycodone, um, I think. Yeah, got gabapentin, diazepam. You name it. There was about five different drugs. It was ridiculous. Um, and they basically tried to send me home and sent me home. So I got a taxi home. Um, and then over the next, so this was this was the end of June. So the next four weeks in July, um, the story the story is quite quite traumatic. But basically, I ended up calling an ambulance five times over the space of a month because each time um, the pain in my chest and my heart was going into the VT, um, I, I just thought every every time it, I was like, what should I do here? I thought, should I die at home or should I go there and take my chance and, you know, save me? And that was what was going through my head, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. um, and every time the paramedics had come out, they'd see what was happening. And the paramedics were really supportive and they kept saying, you know, you need to go to hospital. And then I was like, well, I've not had very good experience in hospital. Don't take me back to that hospital. Blah, de, blah, de, blah, blah. Um, so eventually they took me back into the hospital again. Um, the same hospital on one of the occasions, I let them take me. They rushed me straight through this time. They didn't put me on A&E again, put me on another ward. Uh, could see how much pain I was in, brought a load of doctors around to see me and they were just like, yeah, it's vaccine injury. Um, we don't know what to do with you. You need a cardiologist again. Um, so then they kept me in for another week, saw a cardiologist again. Uh, by this time, they'd started me on blood thinners um, as well as the uh, coltagene. So respiratory had been to see me, put me on blood thinners. Cardiologist came to see me and just said, um, you know, you've had all the tests done we think you might have microvascular angina in your heart now um, because of um, the vaccine and this kind of microclotting hypotheses. So I said, well, can you test me for microvascular angina, please? Uh, He turned around and said to me, no, because we don't think you're well enough. The test would be too dangerous for you at this point. We think it'd be too stressful on your heart. Right, let me just back up for a second there. So the second time, well, the, the, the most recent time you just told me about, you went in, so they were hap- not happy. They then said it was vaccine injured. So do you know what had changed? Um, yes, I do. And I missed an important point in the story out. Because I was in the UK COVID vaccine family group, a few people were starting to talk about consultants that had seen private ones in London. Right. So in the time that I was calling the ambulance out about six times after the first, sorry, after the collapse and that long admission of four weeks I was in, um, I I paid for a private consultation to, you know, because I told you about my concerns over the lung scan, over the VQ yeah. scan. Yeah. So I paid for a private con- consultation with a, um, a consultant, a respiratory consultant in London at the Royal Brompton. Um, and my wife was obviously on the, the consultation and um, 
I basically said to him on the consultation, first thing I said to him was, gave him all my history, what's been going on. He, he had access to my scans. I just said to him, I said, can you tell me? I said, I'm a dying. I said, I feel like I'm dying. Um, I said, will you please tell me if I am? Because I want to tell my children. Um, so he turned around to me and said, um, he, he said, no, I don't think you're dying imminently, but I'm very worried about your heart again. So he said to me, this is definitely vaccine damage. He put it all in a letter to me. He reviewed my scans and he said, you need to stay on blood thinners um, and we need to check on your lungs again in three months' time to see how your lungs are doing. And he said to me, I suggest you see a cardiologist right away. So I said, well, that's funny because I've just, um, you know, I've been told that, you know, there's nothing wrong with my heart. And he, so he said, no, we've seen lots of vaccine-injured people at this hospital um, we've seen about 200 and I think he used the figure 239 to me. You're about the 239th. Um, so he said, you need your heart checking again, buddy. Um, so I said to him, well, can you recommend someone? Because, you know, I, you know, I've had a shit, shit experience with people mm -hmm. up to now. So he recommended his colleague and gave me a name. Um, so that, that's what I did. Um, uh, and, and paid for another private consultation with his colleague. Um, and then what had happened is that when that had gone on in the interim of being in hospital the first time, right? I'd had the appointment with him, and then unfortunately, because I was so ill, I was back in my local hospital again. Right. I had that letter from him with me. I had right. a letter that said, "This is vaccine injury. He's got blood clots in his lungs because they've reviewed the scans. Um, we don't think the CTPA is is accurate. We're finding X, Y, and Z in people." Um, and you know we, we're concerned for his heart, and, and that's what I took with me. So they took me serious, and that's why then that they were saying that they thought I had this microvascular angina in my heart. Right. So, did they take you more? Did, did you see the same cardiologist then, or not? No, they they sent a, an lovely a, a, another one round. He was so he was so nice. He was really nice to me, um, and he just said to me, yeah, you know. He said, yeah, we believe you. Um, he just said, like, you know, you're not well enough when he mentioned microvascular angina to have the test done. He said, I suggest we put you on a trial of these drugs. Um, he did say to me, if it's microvascular angina, he said it could take a few months to get the right drugs and the dosage. He said it's um, a diagnosis that some cardiologists don't actually believe in. Um, he said it's a contentious condition that we're only becoming aware of more recently. What 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 is I mean I know what angina is but for for those I have no idea what 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 is it like tiny bits of angina all over the heart muscles or something like that or yeah so it's exactly that so it's all the tiny blood vessels that um that, that serve the heart muscle um so from the superficial via the pericardium underneath the pericardium that you know the skin of the heart and it's all the tiny blood vessels under there that serve all the muscles so it's not your big it's not your big arteries and, so and veins, coronary so, arteries so, like normal angina. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it gives you the very similar symptoms. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I ended up in hospital again for a week there and, um, you know, they looked after me this time, tried me on drugs, sort of settled me down a little bit again. And then in the meantime, got home and got an appointment with the, um, the cardiologist in, in London, um, to see what was going on sent him all my records or my friend did because i wasn't even 
I wasn't even well enough to to you know do any of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I was I was pretty sick. Mm. Uh, cardiologist London in London had the appointment with him um, via Zoom, um, and he just said, "You don't get VT in your heart for nothing." Um, you know, I've seen all your records. He said, um, "You've obviously got blood clots in your lungs." He said, um, he, "I told him about the rest of the symptoms, about my vision, about my legs." Um, he said, um, "I think you need to come down to London and get a load of tests done." Um, by this point, Matt, I couldn't even. Um, I could barely walk to my front door. I couldn't put the rubbish out. I couldn't put the bin out in front of my house. Um, so, you know, I, I couldn't walk down the road or anything like that. Um, so he decided that um, he decided that I needed to be taken as an inpatient. So they essentially sent an ambulance to my house. I had to get a patient ambulance and an ambulance mm. and a crew to take me to hospital in London. Um, so that's what they did. They admitted me into the hospital in London. Uh, so, so very grateful for that because um yeah did uh, did you have to sort out the ambulance to london yourself <laughs> yeah um so there's massive tail involved in that as well thought there uh, would be yeah so you know when i told you i called the ambulance out six times in between <laughs> yeah right so one day i get some knock off the knock at the door and two two lovely people came to the door um and they said they're part of this high-intensity um, local response team. So I was like, all right, okay, come in. They've been sent round to assess me because I'd been phoning an inappropriate number of ambulances in a year. Mm, frequent call. So I was like, yeah. yeah. So I was like, yeah, that's fine, you know. So they said, you know, we're here. So they, were, they were really nice people, Matt. They said, we're here to help you. Um, you know, can you tell us what's going on, please? And then we could signpost you or try and help you find a solution so you're not phoning an ambulance all the time, right? So I told them all the story. They could see how ill I was. They were just so supportive. Um, and I told them about that, you know, I'd had this appointment in London. I was awaiting the second one. Um, and, and then they basically saw it and they went to me, right? They went, you're not the kind of person that we normally visit that calls out ambulances. Um, we can see that you're genuinely really ill. And they advised me if it continues every single time, they said, phone an ambulance, get yourself to hospital. Um, and then they gave me their phone numbers and said, stay in touch. If there's anything we can do for you to help you, um, if you get in any trouble, you know, you know, if this carries on and on, we'll try and support you. So I'm really in debt to them because they turned out to be very supportive. Um, so anyway, so um, the doctor in London said to me, I paid private, but he, he said to me, all these tests privately are going to cost you about £20,000 to have all these scans done, all these tests. I said, I can't afford that. He said, okay, I'll write a letter to your GP, tell him how important it is, get him to refer you on the NHS down to me in London, um, and I'll um, you know, I'll, I'll see you on the NHS. So I was so grateful. Um, so he, he wrote that letter to my GP. Um, and again, I was I couldn't cope with contacting GPs at that point and stuff like that. It was all so traumatic. I was so ill after everything that had gone on and was going on, in pain every day. So my friend contacted the GP. Uh, GP turned around and said, no, I'm not going to make that referral because I'm not paying for an ambulance out of my budget to take him to London. Um, he said, because I have to pay out my budget for that. So why can't he just see somebody local? I'll refer him to cardiology locally, was his, was his answer. Uh, so completely disregarded the um, specialist's opinion. Um, 
so then uh, friends keeps phoning up saying he's got an NHS right to be referred to where he wants. You've got an eminent cardiologist saying that he needs to be referred. Um, you know, please, can you do this for him? He's really, really ill. Um, so then GP said, I'll refer him, but I'm not paying for this ambulance. So he'll have to make his own way down there. Um, so it got a bit crazy at this point. Um, we had to get local MPs involved. Um, I phoned the high intensity team that had been to my house involved. They even visited my GP to try and put pressure on him. To get How, much him to gonna How much was it going to cost? How much was it going to cost? How much was it going to cost? I have no idea how much an ambulance costs to London. I would imagine it's yeah. probably talking about a thousand pounds for a crew and an ambulance for a day. I would imagine it's quite expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't have been that much if it was just a basic transfer. You wouldn't necessarily need them to be both paramedics, so you could probably five hundred quid, maybe tops. Right. It wouldn't have been massively. Exp- well, that's what I'd charge you with my company, <laughs> off the top of the head. <laughs> Because you, you you would be a low dependency transfer. So because because I know you were poorly, but you were still you know maintaining your airway yes. and everything else. You know what I mean. So it would have just been a, you know a bum on a seat. You wouldn't need to have been doing interventions or anything on the way. So it's you know you kind of low risk transfer. So it'd just be mileage really, and the, and the cost yeah. of a paramedic and a and a and a crew member. So yeah, you're probably looking at about five hundred quid. That's that's me being like, yeah, you know. So yeah, it's a bit tight <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So. You know, I I was really, really ill still, chest pains, thought I was, you know, having to fight not to call an ambulance, literally fight not to call an ambulance every night, thinking, you know, every time my heart goes, um, you know, thinking is, you know, is this it kind of thing because of the pain still. Um, so, it's, so I was going to the GP, you know, what's he supposed to do then with all this pain? I get one next day, a knock at the door, pharmacy dropped off half a litre of morphine Um, and then and a um, straw. <laughs> do you know what yeah, mean? yeah. And I said to him, "What should I do? It's not working. It's not helping me." So he said, "Treble your dose. Treble your dose. Um, you need to take more." Um, and then by this time, he was like fed up with me, and he was like, "Yeah, you need to get to London." Um, so eventually, with all this pressure on him and stuff over a couple of weeks, um, he, he reluctantly we managed to get this ambulance sorted. I don't know who paid for it in the end. I literally contacted that many people. We contacted MPs, the ICS, the Integrated Care Service that took over the CCQ. I kicked up that much of a fuss or people did on my behalf. I got this ambulance sorted and I got to London. Um, and I was in hospital in London for a month. So a I was month. in all of August. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I don't really want to ask this question, but so what happened when you got to London? I got to London and obviously uh, they had a checklist of things to work through because they said to me, you're quite a complex case. They were finding all sorts of my bloods. Um, so first first on the checklist was my heart, um, obviously. Um, they were querying because of something on my old ECG that it looked like I might have had an old heart attack because um, that had been commented on, which I didn't know. Um, it said I'd had a small heart attack. Um, so first of all, they... They queried, um, they did a scan for that because they wanted to know whether they thought I had a chronic perimyocarditis. So they said because the amount of months it had been going on for, they were they were worried about a fibrosis in my heart, uh, which would have re- possibly required a surgery at that point. Mm. Um, 
so I had the scans and thank goodness nothing's come back on the fibrosis um, for that. So that was all clear. So then they decided then it could be microvascular angina, like um, the hospital said, back up north. So they then did another cardiac MRI um, where they inject you with something called adenosine, which basically puts your heart under a load of stress mm-hmm. uh, whilst you're in the scanner. Um, and the idea is to see how the blood vessels, um, whether they're dilating or contracting. Again, thankfully, that came back fairly normal. So, again, they were bamboozled as the cause of my VT in my heart. Um, so then they started to look at the bigger picture and started to run a whole load of blood tests and also scan my lungs at this point as well, rescan my lungs and look at the old scans on my lungs. Um, so looking at the old scans of my lungs, they said categorically you had massive blood clots in your lungs, you had loads of emboli, so, yeah, you were lucky. Um Rechecked my lungs and they've said now to me that my pulmonary emboli, uh, the big ones, have all gone, thank goodness. Um, but I've now got a bit of a problem in my lungs perfusing. Um, so they did a lot of blood tests. Um, still couldn't find, like, an, they were looking for like autoimmune diseases and things like that, vasculitis um, and things like that. Because there's been a lot of autoimmune um, diseases off people who've been vaccine injured. And then they also noticed that I told them about all, by this time, Matt, I've started to develop in my hands. It's really painful when I type, um, but I started to develop contractures in my hands. So this fingers, I can't straighten my finger. Um, I struggle to straighten my fingers on both hands on my ring finger. So it's really painful for me to type. And I showed them all the um, the fasciculations, the twitching in my muscles, and they could see all my muscles have wasted away because I showed them pictures of myself. Um, so the neurology were like, yeah, we think there's a, neurolog- a neurological cause here going on. Repeat brain scan. Brain scan came back inconclusive again, but pretty much normal. But just a few white matters on the brain just said, oh, it's probably normal aging. So we'll disregard that. Um, and then they decided to do a um, a CPET test, a cardio cardiopulmonary exercise test, essentially. So it's like being on a treadmill or an exercise bike. Mm. Obviously, I wasn't fit for walking, so they put me on this bike. Um, but they put me under a leading professor, uh, Professor James Hull, who was fantastic, and three other doctors. Put me on the exercise bike, put me on the uh, mask to analyse my oxygen and CO2 consumption. Uh, ECG, um, blood pressure monitor, put a cannula in me, monitor my blood gases and monitor my bloods wired up to a monitor so they could review me. So they said to me, start pedaling on the bike. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. And then I started pedaling and then they were looking at this monitor and they went, can you recheck his line for his bloods, please? Because we're getting crazy readings on the bloods and it can't be right. They didn't, they just, they didn't say that, but they said, he's getting mm. really unusual readings. Can we recheck it? So they rechecked it and let me carry on. Uh, then didn't say anything and then I was horrendous it, it, you know I, I felt like I was going to die doing it but I, I pushed myself to my absolute max um, and then kept me in hospital for another week while they were doing some more bloods um, and then basically all got together as an MDT the neurologist uh, they'd had me under an endocrinologist cardiologist uh, obviously a pulmonologist was probably involved in this MDT um, and then, unfortunately, my consultant who, who took me down there, the cardiologist, was actually out of the country doing a presentation. And 
they wouldn't want they didn't want to tell me what was going on so they kept me in the hospital over a week and wanted to um wanted him to basically give me the diagnosis so i kept i kept by this point i was i was not getting much better um so I started to kick and scream and shout a little bit I said what's going on i feel like you're not telling me what's going on now the tests have stopped so then i got a call from the consultant and he just said our oh, buddy he said um, we've had a meeting and um we've had a look at all your bloods and your results and everything and it looks like you've got myopathy you've got a mitochondrial myopathy um, i'm sorry to tell you um, what's that well buddy i i didn't even know myself what it was um which i think he, the consultant thought i'd know what it was from my background mm. um he said to me i'll give you 10 minutes um i'll give you 10 minutes to take it in and i'll phone you back so i was just in a you know i was just in a room on my own taking this call right and he's so you've got mitochondrial myopathy. So I, I went to Google. Um, I had to go to Google, buddy, because I didn't know what it was. Mm. Uh, and so, essentially, it's a muscle-wasting disease. Um, um, so, yeah, so it's the mitochondria, which are the, um, to be honest with you, this is where my physiology gets really poor from uh, back in my training. But your mitochondria, your, your powerhouse, energy-producing cells of the body, yeah. Uh, from what I believe, uh, process all the oxygen and everything else uh, to convert your you um, you your glucose and essentially everything else into energy. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So he, he told me he had this myopathy and said to me, you know, the reasons, the rationale of coming to that. So he told me that on my um, lung function tests, they found that my diaphragm was severely weakened and my my respiratory muscles are basically like some of them are like an old lady's respiratory muscles. So they thought that was very strange for someone of my age. My CK levels have been chronically uh, raised as well. Not, not sky high, but chronically raised all the way through. So they had that. And then apparently when I was um, doing the exercise test, I went into severe acidosis in my blood. And my lactic acid was basically, you know, off the charts, higher than, sort of any Olympian could produce, you know, mm. trying to do a world record attempt. Um, so it, it basically, from their point of view, is um, it's indicative of myopathy. And, um, yeah, that's um, that's what I've got. Um, so he said to me, um, that'll be what's causing your problems in your heart because when you look at myopathy, it's um, it's quite a nasty little um, nasty little disease, Matt, I'm afraid. Mm. So what what's... Can you give us any more info about myopathy then for those of us that don't know? Um, at, the, at this minute in time, I'm waiting for biopsies, should we just say. Uh, I'm told they're 12 months on the NHS as an emergency uh, because they have to be done in an operating theatre. They're going to biopsy me because they need to know what type of myopathy I have because um, there's various types. Um, so it needs to be done under a, a biopsy in a microscope. Um, which will then inform potentially if there's any treatment. But um, sorry, what was your question, Matt? Again, sorry. So I just just wanted to explain what myopathy was a little bit more in detail, just just for those people that didn't know what it was. Yeah, well, I've tried to blank it out if I'm honest, Matt. But essentially, they warn me what what happens is your body starts to. So all my muscle cells and all my cells in my muscles that control. Um, smooth muscle and obviously you know my voluntary contractile muscles uh, they're all basically degrading away um, and dying away slowly if, if you like to put it into um, a certain term 
I mean, one of the nurses in the hospital has advised me. She said, um, "If I was you, when you get home, um, she said I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing things. I wouldn't try and be active because you're just speeding up the death of your your mitochondria, basically, um, and you're just going to um, potentially shorten your life by doing that." So she said, "You should just try and rest and 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 take you know take it like that." She said, "Don't be trying to like go out and you know walk too much and things like that." So, yeah, so obviously your mitochondria in all your cells, um, so they're in, involved in your cells in your heart, the muscles in your lungs, your diaphragm, your intercostals, all your breathing muscles, uh, even muscles that help with digestion. So um, when I'm talking about digestion, I'm obviously talking about muscles in my mouth, you know, your mastators, mm. there's lots of little muscles in your mouth, your vocal cords, all these are powered by your mitochondria. Um, so essentially what happens to people with myopathy is the body starts to shut down um, slowly. Uh, there's, there's generally three kinds of myopathy. Um, one that's uh, relapsing and remitting, a little bit like MS. Um, one that you go gradually downhill and one that you go downhill really, really quickly. Um, it tends to be more genetic in people. Um, when it's genetic, it's very much more severe. Uh, so it's it's um it's genetic in children um who are born with it and they have such a tragic lives um some of them don't you know live to even eight years of age with it um you know it's quite it's quite a nasty disease to be honest with you matt mm. um, so you, you've got to wait for the the biopsy any idea when that's going to be yeah so obviously um the biopsies where I was told was um, they should be done as urgent because they've said to me the treatment to try and slow this thing down would be most likely immune drugs and steroids uh, because there isn't a treatment for it. Um, you know, it is what it is. It's just one of those diseases there's no treatment for. Um, so they told me three months waiting list. Uh, sorry, they told me it needs to be done urgently and probably around about three months. So... Um, because of how unwell I am, um, the hospital in London have suggested that I get all my care now up north. Now they know what's wrong with me. So my GP referred me to my local hospital um, and attached the discharge summary. And um, I got a, a note from my GP back the other day to say the waiting list is 59 weeks for that biopsy. Um, because um, it has to be done in an operating theatre by a surgeon um, and it's considered as non-urgent because obviously after COVID, which I appreciate, there's a lot of people needing surgeries that um, are life-saving. Um, and um, unfortunately for me, uh, the biopsy is not going to save my life. Um, so it will just inform treatment a little bit and, you know, um, so yeah that's 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 kind of where i'm up to but uh, yeah um, but even so just just stuff like um the recommendation from london said that you know we need to check this man's lung function test every three months in the interim um you know because god forbid i don't think they think it's going to happen but my lungs could start to depreciate before the 12 months i don't think they think that but they've set out a good practice you know to keep monitoring him so again, my GP wrote to the hospital about this, and then they've told me it's 29 weeks is the earliest they can get me in to monitor my lungs. Um, and then I've started to develop other symptoms, Matt. Um, 
I started to, um, I've had to go to hospital once more. I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought I was, um, it was you know, I feel so soft. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like I've lost all my dignity. But I thought I was having an anaphylactic shock one day. I couldn't breathe through my throat. Um, and I phoned an ambulance again, or my mother had to phone an ambulance and I couldn't speak. Um, and they came out within minutes because um, they thought I was having this shock. Um, and then they said, oh, it's not anaphylaxis because of how you are. You know, they checked all my sats and everything, um, but they, I couldn't, you know, I could barely speak. So they took me to hospital and they said, you're having a laryngeal spasm. Um, so mm -hmm. spasm of your vocal cords. Um, said to me if it keeps happening to go back um, and unfortunately um it does keep happening but i know what it is now so i know it's it's very rarely life-threatening but um it basically um it's stopping me speaking on certain days i can speak but it's a real struggle for me to speak so it's obviously probably just what's going on with me is just um you know it just just is what it is but yeah so you can tell me as much or as little of this as you want but how's this kind of affected the uh the family life and everything else well all through this matt um you know my wife i wouldn't say she it's not that she didn't believe me she knew there was something wrong with me for the first six months you know when i was going back into my heart but she was like well the doctors are saying you know they can't find anything you need to snap out of it and pull yourself together um and i you know i was still working and stuff up till november of 21 and I just got to the point where it was impossible for me to work because my quality of my work was quite frankly embarrassing. Like I was in such a state. So, um, you know, my work didn't want me to resign, but I said to him, look, you can see what state I'm in. And, you know, I said, I'm not, look, I can't look after people when I'm like this. So at that point, it put a massive strain on my relationship with my wife because um, um, I couldn't contribute financially. So we ended up losing our house. Um, so it caused a bit of a split with my wife and stuff. Um, um, and, you know, she's in sort of temporary accommodation, if you like, with my daughter. Um, so that, that was kind of tough um, because, you know, it's not that my wife didn't believe me, but she, you know, she just thought I wasn't, you know, trying hard enough kind of thing. And, you know, and again, I didn't know it was vaccine injury then. So I've been sort of living at my mum's for a long time since then. And then as time gets on, obviously, my wife cares about me still. Um, you know, I care about my wife. I love her to bits. Um, but she just said to me, as she said, me got sicker and sicker. My wife works from home um, and she's in like a temporary house. So she's like got a computer in her office set up in the living room, if you like, because there's no other room, any place else for it. She said, you know, I can't have you around me like this, how sick you are. I can't look after you because I'm in work. Because um, I couldn't, you know, all this time, I could maybe make my breakfast. Uh, some days I could make my lunch, but I couldn't stand up enough, long enough to make a proper meal or cook anything. It'd have to be like a bowl of cereal or maybe a sandwich, you know, processed meat on a two pieces of bread. That was as much as I could manage to look after myself. Um, and my wife, it was starting to affect my wife, you know, seeing me like this um, and not know what was going on. So it's it's hugely affected the family. Um, at first, my daughter, um, who's 18, um, she kept saying to me, Dad, she said, Dad, you know, it's just depression. You need to snap out of it. You know, you're not doing yourself any favours. Why didn't you go back to work? Um, she just didn't understand, you know. 
Um, so it was only that later on when I got iller and iller that my wife sort of started to see it and my daughter started to see it. And then obviously my daughter's now seen how ill I am because people who, who see me now, Matt on camera, you know, if I meet someone the first time, they, they go, well, you don't look that, that ill. Um, it's only people that really sort of know me. Um, you know, my friends who came and visited me in hospital, like they were just, one of them had to go, Matt, because he was almost in tears because he couldn't, he, he was just like, couldn't believe it was me. Um, so now my daughter's pretty traumatised by it because, you know, she's 18 years of age and I've been her dad who could provide for her. She's, you know, been fortunate to be able to take her on luxury holidays. You know, if she needs money towards something that she really needs, I've been able to provide that. Uh, and my daughter's seen how bad I am. And now, you know, my I can't even, my daughter's moving into university. I couldn't even help move her things into a student accommodation because I'm not well enough to do what most dads you know most dads would do for the children uh, you know a really exciting time in my daughter's life I've not been able to attend family parties or functions because I can't I can't leave the house um, the only time I can leave the house is um, to attend hospital appointments I never know how bad I'm going to be so I've managed to they've cleared me for driving for, for the time being which is great so I've got some independence back there again but I never know how I'm going to be. So some days I've had to call patient transport since. And, um, yeah, I just don't know how I'm going to be. So it's um, it's traumatic, bud, because um, that's why I decided to speak out. Um, but it's like I'm, my hands, I struggle to type. So, uh, you know, you've got to find the positives, right? I found a way to type. I use an iPad with the big keys and I just tap away with my index finger because my index finger's not spasmed up. Uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's why I've decided to speak out, Matt, because what I've gone through, mate, is I won't wish it on anyone, buddy. I wouldn't. No, I don't blame you. <coughs> this has been fucking hell, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. it's all right, buddy. It's all right. You know, it's, uh, I understand why they couldn't find what was wrong with me now, because, you know, it's not an easy diagnosis, because I've contacted a support group for myopathy and... Um, you know, they've told me that, you know, it's a diagnosis that usually takes a few years to arrive at unless it goes quite serious quite quickly. Mm. No, it's just, I mean, I think it was that ignorance at the beginning with people, wasn't it? You know, yeah, it wasn't the vaccine. It wasn't, it wasn't. And you're like, okay, well, if it's not that, what is it? Oh, we don't know. Well, to be, to dismiss something, you need to have done everything you can to dismiss it. You can't just dismiss something and say it's not that, but still you know it's it's just i've seen some horrendous stuff anyway since this has all started which is why i i came out of the nhs anyway because i just i didn't like what, what i, I mean saw Matt, i'm quite pragmatic i don't want to it's not going to change anything you know it's frustrating mm. for me but it's not going to change i don't want to slag doctors and nurses off because look you know yourself um there's some very good people um you know there, there is some poor ones should we say but there's, I think there's a majority of good people and the system is under bombardment. So I'm not going to call anyone at all. And I understand why as well. They didn't believe me it was a vaccine because, mm. like, you know, I sit back now and question everything because I'm someone who would like to think he's unbiased. Mm. You know, how would they? Because there's nothing on mainstream media about it. So when they mm. go home at night, you know, until, like, there's thousands or hundreds of people coming through the doors, why would they connect the dots? Because they're not getting told it's dangerous. Like me, I didn't get told it was dangerous, you know? Well, this is, yeah, this is the informed consent thing. I mean, I know when we were going, when we did the 
the APPG meeting in London um, and speaking to people and and just speaking to the they're, they're heavy trying to sell. Well, it was the AstraZeneca's, so we've 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 you know that's no longer in circulation, um, and they're trying to sweep it under the carpet. But you need to remind them that people have had injuries with Pfizer as well. So, but you know, so okay, fucking jeez. So, so yeah, so that's that's what I'm up to, buddy, with it. Um, I'm like I say, I'm really grateful as well to the hospital in London um, for their honesty. Um, so I I saw about I probably saw almost ten, eight or ten different consultants while I was there. Numerous doctors, every single one was interested in me, genuinely interested. Came around to me, um, showed me real dignity and and sympathy and respect, and said to me, "Yeah, this is real. We've seen loads of you." Um, we're sorry though they were honest with me and they just said look um, you know we don't know what this is yet if we're being honest it's a little bit like HIV as in yeah, it's going to take us a number of years before we know what's driving it and I've had mm. some conversations with them where there are there is research going on in long COVID groups not with the vaccine injury groups um, it's very, very complicated, but there's some politics in the NHS. But apparently they know they're starting to get ideas of what's going on with microclotting. They know it's real because uh, mm. they've seen it now in long COVID groups. They're doing some studies that um, with University College London, I think it is. Um, so there's a lot of people, the first hundred people with long COVID down there that got who are in a study. Um, but the problem what they've got is now is, um, is they can't get control groups, Matt, because... Also, there's a study in Sheffield, which I don't know whether you've heard about one of the researchers there. And I forgot Caroline, I think it's Caroline Dalton and Douglas Kell and the group are working tirelessly behind the scenes. What they're realising is that everyone in their little group so far, and I don't want to misquote them, but I think it was everyone who'd had the vaccine had microclots as well uh, without trying to cause any hysteria. Mm. Doesn't mean they're necessarily symptomatic. But the problem what they've got now is then trying to get a control group and also how many people in the country can they find who's not had COVID and who's not been vaccinated to put in a control group to prove this microclotting is the one of the drivers. So there's a bit, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to, but it's going to take a number of years. Yeah. I mean, because there's always been the argument that long COVID is just vaccine injury, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um but there are people that have had, well, I'm told there are people that have had COVID without the vaccine that have long COVID. But um, I've can I address something that. here as well, actually, Matt? There's another yeah, important please. caveat to this um, conversation that's really, really weird. Hmm. So the first question I get is, um, have you ever had COVID? And I'd never had COVID as far as I know ever. Uh, and the interesting thing was, because I worked in professional sport, uh, I was lateral flow tested every day up until I mm. lost my job. And I PCR'd every week. So I've got records of those tests. Um, so that was from, I was that was all the way through up until November 21. Now, since all this has happened to me because of the way I sort of was treated at the hospital first, I requested all my medical records. Yeah. And on my medical records, they requested my GP records through something called an ICE referral, an integrated care, something or other it's called. So I'm looking at my records just recently, um, and somebody has entered on my GP medical records five days after my second AstraZeneca vaccination, suspected COVID-19. 
infection. So um, I found it really strange because I hadn't been to my mm. GP apart from, you know, the two cases earlier in the year for 20 years. So I reported it to a, a solicitor um, and said, can you investigate this for me? What What's going on? Who's put this, you know, I've got my wife who's a witness. You know, I've got all these lateral flow things that I can produce the results of. You know, I've never had COVID-19. Um, and the solicitor said to me, he's had a number of complaints of the same thing. So he doesn't know, but he just said he's had a number of complaints where people have had it entered onto their medical records. So I, I think... Had, Go on, sorry. I have no idea why that would be. Um, I do know that the NHS system, when I worked in the NHS, I would have a login. So I yep. would log into the hospital system, and I would, if I log in any system, I'd put, they'd know who was logging in and out of the system. There would be, um, you know, a name and a time and date stamp to who was logging in, you know, if mm. anyone entered something. So, so I would assume that it can be traced to whoever entered yeah. that on my record. Yeah, it can be. And then there would be on the systems that i've seen when when because i could see where the patients when when they'd gone for pcr tests and what when the, what the results were on the system um not every single one um but it depends um if it was done at the surgery then yes and sometimes the results would be sent to the surgery as well if they'd done them somewhere else so it used to say what when they'd had the jab what date it was what it was serial number and everything else and then i could see when they'd had pcr tests done positive or negative results so you would have been able to see that, but you could see it wouldn't necessarily, I'm trying to think whether it, whether it, a name of who, in, there probably would be a way of finding out who inputted that, but it's not usually, it wasn't, I don't remember it being visible to see because it, it was sent off to be tested, if that makes sense. So you just get the result back. So you don't normally get a name of the person who inputted that data, if that makes sense, because it doesn't I mean normally matter, but. I mean, I, I tried to reason it in my mind, thinking, well, has somebody entered it in my, somebody else's, rec, you know, positive test on my record by mistake. But then the question nah. would be is that couldn't happen because you have to log into each person's record, right? So Yeah, you do, you do, yeah, you do. I, th I think personally that it's, personally, and this is me, and I, I think it's because they can turn around and say, if you've had COVID, then some of the stuff that's happened to your heart would be because of COVID. Whereas if, if your records would have nothing, then it would all solely be down or have a, a lot more you know weight behind it to say it's all solely down to the jab itself. So I think that that's why they put COVID because then they can turn around and say, well, you had COVID. So, you know, COVID could have given you the clots and then the vaccine made it worse. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Whereas if you've not had COVID full stop and you've got myopathy, you've got bloody angina you've got everything um they can't say it's anything I else mean, but that i would like to think because it was done at my gps that there would be if someone's put that there must be a consultation record of a consultation that took place from well it GP. should have been yeah it should have been on or, on or around the same entry because you can't you, this is the thing you can't put you can delete stuff but it's all it's always done in kind of chronological order mm. so if there was a positive test there should have been a pcr test before that or uh, and perhaps a tele excuse me a telephone consultation where someone phoned up and said i might have grown up yeah, yeah, yeah. you yeah, know yeah. so there should have been evidence on your records for it to be just randomly put in there that's it. and then obviously phoning the solicitor up as well and then them yeah. saying the same were they all injured people as well though i don't know so um i mm. didn't ask that question and i've asked them where they got on with it but they uh, to be honest with you i don't think they're that 
they don't seem that bothered. They just told me that's that. Um, they just said they'd heard of it. So it's the solicitor that's representing us in the um, the COVID inquiry. Um, so it's the same solicitors. Uh, right, okay. Okay. Yeah. So are you getting involved into that as well then? I know we're trying to do some stuff. I think we're looking at the third phase, I think, if we can. I would I would like to. I've applied to be a core participant, so um, I would really like to, yeah. Um, I know on was... Monday, because there was supposed to be the investigation into the into the reactions and the jabs issues, but then on the Monday, I think, in Parliament, didn't he turn around and say they're not going to bother doing that? They're going to do it as, a, as an overall investigation into COVID kind of um, as a more holistic investigation, not specific because they didn't want to waste taxpayers' money and stuff. I think they're just trying to brush it under the carpet by the sounds of it, to, to be honest with you. Obviously, the thing is, though, mate, is if if there's any vaccine hesitancy, right, then it, it, a whole thing falls down. So if you've got people like yourself speaking out, John, Alex, and Vicky, and all the other, I want to get some more of this, the, uh, the crew on on here as well you know it, it will create hesitancy among the population wouldn't it which they can't they can't really have yeah i mean i've been speaking to um some reporters should we say um yeah news reporters who've had 30 year career 40 year careers um some who very very senior positions held senior positions in the media for um some of the bigger mainstream media channels if you like um, and they've never seen anything like it. Um, I'm saying to them, I'm speaking to them saying, I want my story out there because I feel like, you know, I feel like the government aren't being completely honest with people. I think it should be informed consent. I certainly didn't get informed consent. Um, you know, I didn't even get a piece of paper that told me of any, I didn't get, a, I didn't sign anything, I didn't get anything. I just got told, you know, it was safe and effective. Um, so, you know, I feel like the government are playing God with people's lives and I'm not trying to scare someone by being anti-vax and stuff. Obviously, I've got my own opinions now, but I feel it should be out there. So I'm, I'm contacting the media um, and I'm getting told um, we need to get our lawyers involved in our legal team to tell your story because we've had six similar stories as yours. In fact, some probably worse than mine. Six occasions... Um, They've been promised by mainstream media newspapers that were going to be published. And on the next day, they were pulled. Um, they were expecting the article to be printed and published, and it wasn't there. Um, and now I've asked them for the criteria. What What's the government's criteria? What who, Who's deciding this criteria? What should be allowed and what shouldn't be? Because then we can tell my story or someone else's story uh, and try and give informed consent to people without you know breaching any laws or whatever it is. So I got told loosely that um, it's if it causes panic in the population, then it can't be published. But then the word panic in the population is so broad. Yeah. What did the what what did the government do? They caused panic. Yeah. You know. This yeah, it's typical word salad stuff that they would use. It gives a broad broad brush strokes, doesn't it? You know for. Um, and then I'm getting told Ofcom are getting policed. Um, and Ofcom, uh, did yeah. you see the talk sport thing the other the other night? Did you see that with um, no. the guy at the championship football game collapsing? No, I don't watch football, but um, I did right. speak to Matt Letizia when I was down. 
in London. Yeah. Lovely bloke. Not, and I met a few people down there. Norman Fenton as well. I've, I've had them on the show, but actually, you know, seeing them in the flesh, which was really nice. Yeah. Um, the the reason for the meeting wasn't great, but it was still it's still nice to to speak to those people. Um, he was saying that he'd spoke to loads of FA doctors at the time, you know, when he was speaking out, saying, you know, and they would he was saying that you know the pressure um, that was put on the players, you know, was quite unbelievable from all from from all of the teams as well. So the ones that aren't necessarily playing, like the under twenty ones, and you know, and all yeah. that. And it's sad because you think those boys will do anything for a chance, you know, including doing something like that. So, yeah. but yeah, so what, what I was, I what I'm trying to segue into is I was having a conversation, it was a conversation. It was a bit of an argument on a Twitter thread the other day. I think it was something um, I'd seen on your feed actually about something that had been posted. I can't remember a few people. Had, oh yeah. It was about the overarching concern with the APBG meeting and, and things like that. Cause it caused a bit of a ruckus, didn't it? Which we spoke about. Um, yeah. I'm not going to talk about it here because I don't really want to. I understand both sides, but it's, yeah. I did a meeting, I did a rant that got me banned. I've just come off that ban from YouTube um, for talking about it at the end, anyway. Um, but anyway, so I was chatting to the this anaesthetist on, on Twitter about it, and 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 you can't, you can't. They don't see any different you know, safe and effective. And even if you say, you know, we, we give informed consent, it's like, yeah, I was given informed consent. And, you know, and it's, it, you can't, there's no arguing with them. They're so, and then you're trying to say, look, and then they'll, they'll bombard you with statistics to show that, that it works. And you're like, yeah, but this is the problem. It's like, we need to discuss. It's not about you convincing me that you're right and vice versa, because I don't care. <laughs> you're going to have as many experiences, uh, you know, letters after your name or whatever, but, I don't care what I want to do is stop whatever ha is happening from happening, deal with the yeah. excess death problem that we're having and the rapid cancers and just at least look into it. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it makes it look more, you know, I start to get, you know, I don't want to go down conspiracy theories, but um, look, you know, when, when with the silence and the banning of it and not looking at it, you know, it's like, it's more suspicious to me. It yeah. makes it, you know, it makes you think that, it makes That's you think that because, yeah. and and what what can I say here now? I'm I'm going to say it, Matt, and you can you know if it gets edited out, it gets edited out. But my suspicion is here that I think the governments around the world have been scammed, and it's been the biggest scam in history. Um, I think the pharmaceutical industry has milked billions of pounds and sold this story, sold a lie to the governments, and I think the governments. I would hope have acted out the best interests of the information they were fed. And I like to believe that. Um, but I do feel now is I think the governments feel like it's, I think the governments probably know. I don't believe anybody can be that stupid mm. unless you know they're walking around with a blinkers on. Um, and I believe that they feel it's too far for them to come back from um, because it's been such a holy, you know, and I do believe, you know, as quickly as it goes under the carpet, you know, they don't, nobody wants to be individually blamed for it. Uh, and I do, I do believe that's what's happened. And I, I think it's, um, yeah, it's a massive um, tragedy. And, and and the thing is, it is stopping people losing their lives. And you, there's no reason now why they can't investigate it. It's, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I think, especially now where two things, you know, my, friends of mine who still work, who, who still work in A&E, uh are telling me that they're, they're getting patients coming in with covid 
and they're really sick and it's like right so they, have they had their jabs and you know you know they have because everybody has <laughs> you know so it's like right well that's not working then and then it's like well you know how come those of us that have had it who haven't had the jabs you know i had covid at christmas uh not uh, last year i think it was it wasn't great you know the wife and i both had it at the same time we looked after our boy i think he might have had it a little bit as well but we're all unwell for about 10 10 11 days but i didn't die um you know and, and i'm not saying you know that's the same for everybody but what i'm saying is is you know i had it and then i've not had it since i've been all right um but i just don't understand what why we were bit then being told to then take a procedure that you know now that we have done a little bit more waiting it's got significant side effects um but i just don't see it's it's the we're in a pandemic of people who can't admit they were wrong right that's what they think you know and it's i'm trying to you know we, we i don't care like i've just said i don't care whether you're right or wrong i just want to stop this from happening but I think in the in EU Parliament last, I think it was two three weeks ago, they 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 had a Pfizer representative under oath turn around and say that they'd never tested it to see if it reduced transmission. They never tested it for that because they were moving at the speed of science. I don't know if you remember yeah. that bit. Yeah. So that should have been in the news everywhere, all over the world, because what we were told would happen if you took it, they didn't even check to see if it did that. No, and that is the biggest lie. In, you know so uh, if yeah. i was other people i'd be very very angry it's um yeah it's uh, it's quite frankly it, it's unbelievable um it's undeniable uh the amount of excess deaths you know anyone who looks into that it's undeniable you know this is anecdotal but um anyone will tell you who works in the hospitals if you go to get an appointment if you go for a cardiology referral now the 60 70 percent busier than they've ever been in history you know <laughs> if you go for you know a cancer everything and now initially we were getting told it's because of the covid backlog uh, but these are actually new patients they're not they're not the existing ones it's new cases mm. um so you know younger, younger cases as well there's rare cancers as well from what i've spoken to my doctor colleagues you know uh rare cancers on like the kidney and the liver you know where you don't normally get cancers so rare cancers and bud chiari is another one that keeps popping up which is where you get uh, clots forming in the liver and stuff i had a woman on that had that and then i've spoke to about three four other people that have seen it so it's the rare stuff is not so rare anymore um wow. so but i i just don't understand why you know like you say, why can't we have a sensible conversation? Why people can't sit down and just look at this sensibly? Um, but you know, you only have to look into the New England uh, Journal of Medicine, right? Have you um, have you read the book by the lady who was the editor for many years of that journal? No, what's her name? Oh, I've actually forgotten name. I should uh, yes, send it to it. me. Send it to me, please, because that sounds quite interesting. So she yeah. was the editor, and that was one of the most prestigious journals, um, medical journals. You know, after the mm. Lancet and things, one of the most respected. She, she published a book in the early 2000s and um, saying basically that, you know, all these studies that are published now, you know, they're all so, um, if you like, corrupted by the pharmaceutical. She said they're not, there's no science in them. They're not genuine. Mm. Uh, it's pretty much yeah. is what she said. So that's the argument, you know, with people spouting this science off and that science off. It's, you know, 
you need people who are independent and uh, autonomous who's you know to make these decisions there's just too much uh, financial interest because if you follow the money that's where the problem is and who made all the money out of this uh, the pharmaceutical industry yeah and their shareholders and and their friends and but this is what i never I never got my head around there was never any encouragement to be healthy throughout this whole thing it's like you know look after yourself look after each other yeah, and you're a physio, so you you understand the importance of just just simply keeping moving, walking as best you can. You know, there was none of that. It was stay in your house. If it was the worst advice to give someone if they're unwell, wasn't it? Don't talk to anybody. Don't go out in the sun. Stay in the house. Wear a mask. You know, and it was just like if I had to give anybody the worst advice when they were poorly, that would have been it. You know, and I just and we did that for two years and still are doing it. You know, and now this is the thing. They're pushing the flu shots or flu jabs. And I've seen a few people talk, um, say that, um, and again, this is, you know, it's, it can't be verified, you know, friend of a friend and all that kind of stuff. But um, they know a few people that have had really bad reactions to the flu jab than they normally would. And they normally wouldn't. They've, they've never had any problems. Well, so, that's interesting because what we're finding in our group of people that are vaccine injured, and I, I never had any allergies to any medicine in my life before. And now, like certain things, and my body just like makes me pretty, you know, makes everything worse. And we're finding in our group now people are just developing all these allergies and stuff. So I'd quite possibly, you know, it could be because you know whatever the vaccines had in it, their immune system, etc., has all altered. Um, you know, it essentially, it's affected our DNA, hasn't it? So, I mean, look, the people people don't want to admit it, but you you've been you, you know you've had something that's that is programmed your cells to grow something it wouldn't normally do so we have no idea what that's going to do to anybody and i don't care what anybody says you know if if if, if people understood really understood what it was supposed to have done people would be a bit like hang on a minute so you're going to tell my body to do something it wouldn't normally do how do you tell it to stop doing that yeah that's the thing you know so what so so i make this spike protein okay that's great so then when you get unwell you you know you'll, you'll be able to fight it that's great how do you stop it from producing a spike protein? Will my cells always now produce that spike protein every time I become unwell? Will that, you know, as it fucks with my immune system, you know, it's it's just the more we it's know like now. C- oh, did you did you see the statement from the CEO from AstraZeneca? Now I've only seen this recently, so I don't know where I was when he, he released his statement, you know, two years ago or whenever it was. He came, he turned he turned around and someone asked him a question. He he turned around and said, um, we don't know the long-term side effects. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in four years' time after people having these injections. And he said that when they, after they released them. So to me, that sounds like someone who is a little bit concerned. He's being honest, right? Mm-hmm. But why weren't mm-hmm. we told that? Because most people wouldn't have taken. Well, the, most people wouldn't have taken it. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I I personally think AstraZeneca was a bit of a uh, what's the word? Not canary in the coal mine, but their their, their job was to go first. I think because they went first and then they released it, but they only released it up to the age of 45. I think it was when they first brought it out. And then I think Pfizer was about a week or two later. And then AstraZeneca were told to go back and do more, more testing or more trials for obviously up to 60, 65 and over that. Cause that was the, the more vulnerable categories. So they did whether they actually did that or not, but they went away and then came back and go, yeah, yeah, we've done it to over 60s and 65. It's all good. <laughs> so whether they actually did, and then speaking to us, I had Brooke Jackson on the show. She's um, uh, 
Oh wow, well, yeah. Yeah, I know on the show, she was stuff she was telling me about when she was working on, as a site manager on one of the trial sites and things as well. You're just like, you know. And, but Have you heard the, the story about, about Bree Dresden? No, no. Um, so she, she's in React 19, so she formed that support group in America, if you like. Right. So she was actually the AstraZeneca trials in the USA. So they did a trial in the USA. Yeah, um, yeah. So that obviously they tested the vaccination. So she signed a contract, if you like, to be a clinical, uh, what do you call it, a clinical trial volunteer and get yeah, paid for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, or whether she got paid for it, I don't know, but she signed up to do this trial. And part of the sign-up was um, if anybody got any side effects and any illnesses off the vaccine from the trial, that AstraZeneca would cover any medical expenses and, you know, you, you know we'll look after you, it'll be all right. Um, so she was in the first, you got a first jab. Um, had the first jab and became extremely, extremely ill. She's been actually diagnosed with uh, CIDP. Um, so she got so ill that she said, so you know what, that's chronic inflammatory demyelinated polyneuropathy. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was just a bit like, oh, God, there's a chronic in there somewhere. And I was just like, right, okay. Yeah. Um, wow. So she, she, um, she got diagnosed with that, was extremely ill, couldn't take part in the second phase of the study. They just took her number out of the study because they didn't want a negative side effect in the study, so she she didn't appear. But also to make things matters worse is, and she's had to go through the courts and still not won, um, because she didn't complete the trial, they wouldn't pay for her medical care. Oh, wow. <laughs> Can you believe this? Yeah, it, it's And these are all people, like yourself and other people, that, that were doing things for the greater good. They generally thought they were doing things for the greater good. You know, you stepped up to the plate and did did what you did, you know. And it's just, it's, it was that they've really thrown everybody's trust. They kind of built us to a point where we would trust them implicitly and wouldn't ask any questions and then just fucked us for it, didn't they? <laughs> Basically, yeah. that that's... Jeez, I, I, yeah. I mean, like I say, my my theory on it is all. I think they've been scammed. Uh, you know, when I look at um, when I look at some of these politicians, bless them. I'm, I'm not saying I'm the most academically smart, but they come back. They come from different worlds to me and you. Yeah. And should should we just say that um, maybe they have not had the same playground experiences as some of the, um, you know, maybe not. I'm not saying I'm like streetwise because I wouldn't have got the vaccine, maybe, but maybe they haven't quite got that. Um, you know that is maybe they've just been scammed and the silly thing is i've been scammed by them who are even you know absolute idiots by the look of it in my opinion anyway so i think that's what's i'm pretty sure that's what's happened really they've been scammed by the pharmaceutical industry and you know where where's professor chris witty now and where's where's the um in, you know where's where's dame sarah redmond or whatever she's called who, who, yeah. who got knighted at wimbledon and took all the applause you know, she could be working on trying to find a treatment for us. Where, where's she? You know, is she not sorry? I understand she's not meant to harm people on purpose, but, you know, it would be nice to be acknowledged by her. You know, might we might get more support by the government, but where is she? She's happy to take the knighthood, right? Well, I mean, look, when they all had those parties, what did they, what did they know that we didn't in the height of the pandemic? You know, they would have had vulnerable family members probably living in their household, but they all still met up and had a party. So what had they won? What did they know? Or what had they taken to make themselves not feel like they would be a threat to anyone? Because it's the whole, well, they didn't care about giving it to each other, but, you know, would they have given it to their loved ones? So what what were they doing? 
you know so i i thought that right i was trying to be a bit kind of like well maybe the government you know they didn't get told everything but they all had to sign contracts and the contracts from apart from them being blanked out again in eu parliament when he asked for the contracts from pfizer there have been bits that have come out a little while ago for those that that know but it always seems to take a little while to flow to the surface but they had to buy x amount of vials they weren't allowed to return any um and then there was quite a few other stipulations as well so that's why we you'd find the lovely richer countries giving doses to the poorer countries um yeah. because we weren't allowed you to actually, send them back you actually remind me of a good point there so i asked the consultants in the hospital i, I said you know why me i said why do you think i've been vaccine damaged um so there was two comments really um one was it could just be unlucky and genetic which i take on the chin um and then obviously two was um i don't know whether you know but um it came out of the pfizer stuff in america and it's been proved in the scientific literature for astrazeneca but when they um were making all the vaccines they set up the factories to make them and they didn't have any quality control in place so normally you know when you're making medications there has to be um you know they have to pass stringent tests all the machinery the equipment has to be you know passed to make sure it's reliable because it was emergency done, Pfizer, etc., none of that was done. Um, and there was lots of concerns in America, it's been reported in the mainstream media, where Pfizer whistleblowers were saying that the quality, there was massive difference between the doses in the vials, and they were reporting it and getting told basically, oh, it's not a problem. So when I asked the consultants over here, could it, they said it could be genetic, or that um, they said that I could have had a, um, a contaminated or a dose that... Um, had far too many doses in because they were actually multi multi shot vials, weren't they? they weren't. Yeah. Was, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's actually a study, uh, there are a few studies now that um, you can find online that are quite clear and transparent. With the AstraZeneca, they found um, like 300,000 times the dose particles in some of the vials. Um, so, you know, that could quite likely uh, produce or cause someone to blood clot, maybe as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I want to kind of wind this up a little bit now as well, mate. Yeah. So, what else? Any, any kind of anything else you want to? Because I, I know there's a, there's loads and loads and loads of stuff I could ask you, and but this isn't. This is more about getting your message out, and for those people that, like you said, may have had any of those symptoms, um, just go get yourself checked out, man. Just to be on the safe side, you know, because this is the problem, right? Loads of people would have been jabbed. They are, they're they going to be the only ones who know themselves if they don't feel the same or things have not been quite right. And it's just a case of, look, just you're not crazy, okay? You're not going to be laughed at, brandished, nothing. Just go and get it checked out or just start taking an aspirin a day <laughs> just to be on the same yeah. side, you know? Just, you know, um, and, and and just we just need to try and stop the government from, from carrying on doing this because it, it's not going to stop. We're going to have fifth. We're going to have sixth, you know? Yeah, no. For me, my only my my advice my advice for anyone with me about is because I'm getting people phoning me now and their friends have got they've not been they felt not quite right and not quite well and they're starting to say to me what should I do? Now I don't want to panic everyone into doing everything, but I think if you are quite unwell and towards the you know it's been going on a long time, I would reach out. I really would join one of the groups. Now the reason being for that is. Um, I don't want to go off too on a tangent, but because the doctors aren't aware of it because of mainstream media, you need to go and see a doctor who does understand who is seeing this. 
because if you go to your GP and he sends you to your local hospital and your local, you know, it's random, you might not even see the consultant, you might see a registrar, you could see anybody. If he, in his own, it's, it's one man's subjective opinion. If he examines you and can't find anything big and nasty, he doesn't know what it is. And because, you know, medical science hasn't caught up necessarily with microclots and stuff yet. He'll just put on your record, you know, you're not going to get a, a vaccine injury diagnosis and, you know, you're going to get told anxiety and depression and stuff like me because that's what they'll do. So I would really recommend anyone to join a group, uh, take advice and speak to people. And then from there, really, they can, you know, if they want to decide to go and see specific consultants, who have got a bit more of experience of this. Um, that, that That's what I would suggest. Um, and obviously in the interim, if there's anything really serious, of course, go to A&E. Um, but at the same time, you know, through our own experience, because I'm not just, you know, it's not just me, you know, there's hundreds in our group who've had similar experiences to me. So we kind of know what tests we should be asking for now. Mm. Um, you know, obviously your D-dimer, your BMP, particularly with the heart stuff with the younger yeah. guys, your myocarditis and your BMP is not a routine test that's done, you know? No. So, you know, we, we can give you a bit of advice. So, um, that, what's um what are the groups called, please, mate, for those people? Yeah, so the only one that I'm aware of in the UK is the UK COVID vaccine family, so I can't speak highly enough for them uh, because, you know, they've saved my life, really, pretty much. That's the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in the US, there's React 19. Um, now, there are some other groups online. Some of them, actually, sadly now, because they're on Facebook, having to hide themselves. Yeah. So you have- uh, because they're being censored, you would have to be invited into them. So I would say they're the two groups to go for. Uh, there's also the, there's one in Ireland as well called, uh, I think they're called the Irish CV clan or something. So I would get on Twitter, um, you know, get on Google and stuff, uh, look look these things up and uh, get yourself connected to people, get that support um, and take it from there, really, because there's nothing worse than being isolated with this. No, I can bet, mate. What's... Um... So what are your plans now? I mean, I know we've spoke on the phone yeah. and I can see us doing a fair few, few things together going forward, but what's, 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 uh, what's the game plan, Adam? Yeah. So for me, I'm, as, as I said to you, Matt, on the phone, unfortunately I'm one man, I'm a pebble in the ocean against this massive media corruption or whatever you want to call it, media control. Um, so, you know, I'm quite pragmatic you know, we've only got 800 of us in this group. Um, 800 of us, no disrespect, but MPs aren't going to listen to 800 people. We're not even the size of a, you know, a, we're the size of a small housing estate. So why would the MPs listen to us? You know, we're just these vaccine-injured inconvenience. So what we really need is, uh, we really need people, normal people, um, who haven't been vaccine-injured to be sympathetic and listen to my story. I can prove everything that I'm saying. Um you know, I was like one of them people before, you know, you never think it's going to happen to you. So I just want to appeal to people to say, look, this can happen to you. It's happened to me. It's destroyed my family, my career, my, everything's gone. So please support us because without hundreds of thousands of people, like this thing's never going to be properly investigated. And even if you're not doing it for me and, you know, the rest of the vaccine people, you know, to get heard, do it for the safety aspect of your fellow, you know, your fellow neighbor and your fellow human being, because, you know, we just really need to question the safety of these things. And unfortunately, um, the vaccine injured, 
you know, we're just being ostracised. Um, I don't know for whatever reason. I think it fits the narrative to keep us there. Um, so we really need as many people to support us. And um, I'd be eternally grateful for that because you've heard my story. Um, unfortunately for me now, I can't change that story. Um, that's my life now. Um, but I don't want it to happen to somebody else. And uh, it's important to me. Um, it's my way of turning my story into a positive. Um, and I just want the, I just want people to know, have a more balanced view and make their own mind up if they want to take that vaccine or not. Yeah, it is all about choice. That's the, that's the thing. We can't have it both ways. Whether we think it should be stopped or not, people may still want to have it in that, you know, we, yeah, people choose to smoke. People choose, you know, it's yeah. a choice, isn't it? You know, that's the difference. Yeah, where so, can everyone? Yeah, so so for me, I'm just going to shout out to as many people as I can. Go on as many shows as I can. I'm going to. I'm reaching out to mainstream media. I'll show on Twitter. You know, I'll show up mainstream media what they're saying to me, and they, you know, they're refusing us on. So people can see that and make their own mind up. You know about that and things like that, and I'll I'll just try and show the information and present it in as neutral a way as possible and just show people what we're trying to do to be heard uh, and then you know people can make their own mind up what's going on yeah i think it's a bit it's call to arms my video that got my last video that got banned it was a little rant i had at the end of the video well i think it was that because everything else was just of what happened in the, the day in london and i was i kind of lost my not lost my temper a little bit but i was getting a bit frustrated because um we get we get in these groups all kinds of groups and it's just that kind of echo chamber groupthink mentality isn't it and nothing gets done and it's like oh it's like come on you know if you're working in your hospitals and you're seeing stuff say something if you don't want to say something come and speak to to somebody anonymously write a letter write an email just you know because mm. all it is is it takes one person two people to step forward then more yeah. will and then more will and then more will they just don't want to be the first ones to do it yeah. Um, because it's just you know, think about when your kids start getting to the age now, you know, being a, and then do you, you want them to be subjected to that now that there's more evidence? It's just yeah. where can people find you, Adam? Yeah, so at the minute, I'm only on Twitter, I am on Instagram and things like that, but I that's just my personal account, so I'm only on Twitter really about this. Um, the reason I'm on Twitter is because we get shut down on Facebook, we get shut down on Instagram, we're not allowed to say anything about vaccines, we're seen as anti-vax, which as you've heard from me and Matt, we're not anti-vax, it's about, it's about choice and informed choice. So find me on Twitter, please engage with me, uh, please support us, I'm really, really grateful um, and like I say, you know, anything that I can do to help you, uh, you know, I will do myself and, and likewise. You know, if, if you've got any connections, concerns, um, you know, if people want to report things to me, doctors, nurses, physios, um, I want us all to work together for the greater good um, and for people's health. So, yeah, just just please contact me. Don't don't stay silent. If you've got concerns, speak to me, please. You're a brave guy, Adam. You're an inspiration, as Thank I say, you. to all of you guys, mate. All right. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be staying in touch. Stick around in, in a minute when I hit stop. All right. And look. But thank you so much for your time today, mate. I really do appreciate it. No, thanks, Matt. Thank you. No worries. Be strong, brother. Right, guys. Thank you all for listening and watching. I'll see you all soon. See you next week. All right. Cheers.